Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, King James Version, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. Now, I ended my last sermon telling you that for the last 20 years of my life, I have told numerous people that the word Easter in the King James Version of Acts 12 verse 4 is a mistranslation. Then I told you that I now believe that Easter is a good translation. As a matter of fact, I will go so far to say that it is not only a good one, it is a scholarly translation, and it is a very historical, old word to use, and it is proper in Acts 12, verse 4. Um, I believe that the King James Bible translators did not make a blunder or miss a word here. And so, I'm thankful to Yahweh that... I haven't stopped studying the Bible, archaeology, and history. I believe that we should study hard. I believe that we should study for a long time. I believe that we should consult a multitude of scholars and theologians. And I believe that we should be honest with the material that we find. And obviously, we should never stop studying. Never think that you've arrived. Always continue to study. So, I'd like to begin today by looking at the translators on the committee of the King James Bible. It's called the King James Bible because in the early 17th century, in the 1600s AD, King James of England commissioned 54 of the best learned Christian scholars to issue a new English translation of the Bible to be read publicly in the Church of England prior to 1611 when the King James Bible first came out and was published. There existed several English translations of the Bible done primarily in the 1500s and mostly done by single individuals rather than a committee of men. There was a man by the name of Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London, who constructed 15 translation principles to be used during the translation process of the King James Bible. One of the principles was that the English translations from the 1500s be consulted, all of them. There was about eight, if my memory serves me correctly. Specifically, they were to look at the Bishop's Bible, which would formerly be the Bible of the Church of England. The Bishop's Bible of 1568 would act as the guideline for their translation. The translators would not alter an already established English translation unless they felt together strongly that an established translation did not correctly convey the Hebrew or Greek manuscripts that were available to them at that time. Lancelot Andrews, one of the chief directors of the King James Bible, he loved reading the Bible and preaching the Bible. His sermon delivery and his powerful content earned him the title Angel in the Pulpit. Lancelot mastered at least 15 languages in his lifetime, including Arabic, 
Aramaic and Syriac. Those who knew Lancelot Andrews well proclaimed him as a man of character and humility. He was devout. He was pious. He rose early in the morning. He would spend often five hours in prayer and meditation in the morning. And people also knew him as courageous. And they said he was very generous to the poor. And he was kind. John Aglianby was another translator on the committee, predominantly of the New Testament portion. John began college at Oxford at the age of 16 in 1583. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1587, a Master's in 1590, a Bachelor of Divinity in 1597, and a Doctorate of Divinity in 1600. In his adult life, he was chaplain to both Queen Elizabeth and King James I. He is described in a 17th century biography as, quote, a person well accomplished in all kinds of learning, profoundly read in the church fathers and in school divinity and exact linguist, end of quote. He was also a highly skilled debater and he was esteemed as one of the greatest students of the Greek language of any that lived in that age. And he kept correspondence with learned men in every part of the Christian world. As a matter of fact, the picture, it's kind of hard to see behind the words, that's a picture of St. Nicholas Church in Oxford, England. And that is where John Aglianby is buried. Now that's just two out of 54 translators on the committee of the King James Bible version. And I could keep going and describe other highly skilled men that worked on the translation committee of the King James Bible. But my point is that these were not ignorant, foolish men. They were highly educated. Were they perfect men? Of course not. Could they make mistakes? Of course. They're human just like any other human. But they were more educated than the majority of Christians alive today And that includes the majority of pastors and teachers in the Christian church. Bible historian Gordon Campbell wrote this in 2010. Quote, The population from which scholars can now be drawn is much larger than in the 17th century, but it would be difficult now to bring together a group of more than 50 scholars with the range of languages and knowledge of other disciplines that characterized the King James Bible translators. I want you to remember that these scholars were working together, not in isolation. That doesn't mean that one man doing a Bible translation is going to do a bad translation. It doesn't mean that. But what I'm saying is one man can make a mistake a lot easier than 54 men can. When something gets proved by 54 intelligent minds, a mistake is just not as likely. That's because of the multitude of counsel, there's safety. Always look at all sides. Always consult a multitude of scholars. Never be afraid to look into opposing views. Never be afraid to have someone prove what you think might be accurate. I think about putting the calendar together so that we all can have a calendar for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the feast days. And praise Yahweh, Sister Kim, over the past... I would say four years, something like that, has kind of taken that over for me. It's very tedious. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of typing. And we want to honor Yahweh and, and do it properly. 
But I remember back when I would put it together and I'd spend probably a good whole day, I mean all day long, you know, getting everything right, looking up different times, different locations, and writing it all in the proper square. And, you know, you spend like 12 hours a day looking at numbers and you get tired and you get wore out. And sometimes you have to go into a second day if you want to, you know, do it all at one time. And then I would send it to Kim because she's real good with numbers and I would think that I would have it all proper and then she'd text me back and say, I found seven mistakes. <laughs> and it doesn't matter, you know, when you're one person, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you want to get proofed by at least one other person and 54 people would be, would be great. So we have 54 of the greatest scholars, arguably, to ever walk the face of the earth um, in the committee of the King James Bible. A lot of people hear me talk about King James onlyism, and I am against that. That doesn't mean I'm against the King James Bible. I think the King James Bible is a very scholarly and very eloquent and uh, a work of art. Uh, the problem I have is when somebody says that the King James Bible is the only Bible that you can read. I talked with a pastor right here in Conyers years ago. He's deceased now. His name was Pastor James Hall. I think that's right. Brother Jerry knows him. I did a septic job for him, and we got to talking about Bible translations, and I was much younger then. I think I was in my early 20s. And he told me, I believe in the King James Version. And these were his exact words. I believe in the King James Version. All the others are perversions. <laughs> that was his exact words to me. And he may have said 1611. I don't know. Most, of the, most people that use a King James Bible now don't use a 1611. They use what's called a 1769 Blaney Revision. Uh, that's pretty much what the King James is based on now. And there are some differences. They're minor not big doctrinal things or anything like that. But my point, in a nutshell, before we move on, is don't be afraid to consult other people as proof of what you have studied. Allow other people to look at your studies. Allow other people to give their insight and their, uh, their thoughts. <laughs> Um, it never ceases to amaze me when you get good, intelligent minds in a room how that people think in different ways and everybody has something to bring to the table. So 54 men, I think that's a lot to bring to the table here. Okay, is Easter a blunder? Um, Easter is usually put forth as a pagan blunder in the King James Bible by those in the Messianic Torah-keeping movement, and that includes myself in the past. As a matter of fact, Acts 12 verse 4 is the first place that I would go to when I would talk to a King James only person. I had a guy on Twitter about six months ago. He kept bugging me. Let's talk about it. He's King James only. Hardcore, buddy. Hardcore. I mean, inerrant word. And I said, I told him one night, very politely, I said, man, I do not have the patience to do that right now. I'm sorry. I'm studying some other things and... And I've talked with King James only people before, talking about hardcore ones. I'm not talking about people that prefer that Bible. My wife prefers the King James Version. That's fine. I'm talking about hardcore people that think you can't use any other Bible but the King James Bible. So I said, I don't have patience to do it. Finally, when I agreed that we would talk about it, the very first verse I wanted to go to was Acts 12, verse 4. Some of what I told him I believe was accurate. But since studying deeper, I think some of what I told him was inaccurate. 
Let me give you an example from uh, Pastor Randy Foliard of Yahweh's Restoration Ministry in Missouri. Um, he talks about Easter and he speaks about the word Easter in a way that I've heard a lot of Messianic or Torah keepers speak about it. And I want to read three different sources. The first one is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Very, very reputable source, by the way. This is not a fringe reference. This is very reputable and recognized by most Bible believers. And here's what it says about the origins of Easter. It says, the English word, and again, this is Easter, the word, comes from the Anglo-Saxon Esther, or Estera, a Teutonic goddess to whom sacrifice was offered in April. So the name was transferred to the Paschal Feast. Now, the word Paschal here refers to the Passover, not to the Easter. So we see here that Easter replaced Passover. Now, we know historically and scripturally that the only day the apostles and the Messiah observed in the New Testament was the Passover. Never once do we find Easter. We know, I know it's in the King James. Believe me, it's not in the Greek. It's not in the New Testament scriptures. It's simply missing from... Okay, so I've said things exactly like Pastor Randy Foliard there, and I believe some of what he said is accurate. I question some of it now. Um, I would explain to people that Easter is a pagan term, and it should say Passover in Acts 12, verse 4, instead of Easter. And I would point out that the Greek word behind the word Easter in Acts 12 and 4 is the word Pasha or Pascha. And that is correct. That has not changed. Pasha or Pascha is the Greek word used in Acts 12 verse 4. So what does Pasha mean? Well, Pasha is a transliteration from the Aramaic form of the Hebrew word that we discussed last week, Pesach. So you have Pesach, that's Hebrew, and translate, meaning for meaning, that into Aramaic. That is the Aramaic word Pasha, which means to skip over, to pass over, to hop over, like we talked about last week. And then what the Greek language did was transliterate. Transliterate means you take the letters in the former language and you bring them down into the letters of the next language. And so Pasha is Greek for the Hebrew Pesach. Pesach is the word used in Exodus 12, and we know in English today as Passover. So Pasha is equal to Pesach, and Pasha is found 29 times in the Greek New Testament. Now, one of those 29 times is in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, where we read last week that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That's King James Version, by the way. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The Greek word behind Passover there is Pasha. That shows us that the King James translators use the English word Passover to translate Pascha into English. Another one of those 29 times that it's used in the Greek New Testament is in Luke 2.41. We looked at that one last week as well. Where we read that the Messiah's parents would travel to Jerusalem every year to keep the Pascha, it says in Greek. And no doubt they were keeping the Pesach, what we would call the Passover, that originated in Exodus 12. They were not traveling to Jerusalem to keep Easter Sunday. Right? They were traveling to Jerusalem to keep the Passover, what we call the Passover, or the Pasha in Greek. 
So, as a matter of fact, out of the 29 times the Greek New Testament uses Pasha, the King James Bible translators chose to translate that Greek word into English as Passover 28 times. And only one time did they translate it as Easter. So, I would tell people that I met, don't you think they missed that one? I mean, come on. 28 times Passover, one time Easter. But, here's something to think about. Knowing that the King James Bible translators were learned scholars much more than anyone that I've ever met in the Messianic Torah-keeping community, and knowing that they knew the word Pasha could be properly rendered as Passover, they did it 28 times in the New Testament. They knew that. Are we then to believe that all 54 scholars just made the mistake and put in the name of a pagan goddess in Acts 12 verse 4? That is highly unlikely, and I now know for a fact that they did not mess up. I used to believe that they made a mistake because of a lack of knowledge which stemmed from a lack of study on my part for the last 20 years. I thought that I had studied the word Easter sufficiently, but I had not done my due diligence. So at this point, let me say that there can be no doubt that Pasha means Pesach. If it is a transliteration of the Aramaic form of Pesach, then Pasha means the same thing as Pesach. Pasha means what we would call Passover. So Acts chapter 12 verse 4 is talking about Passover. Now let me also say at this point that I still believe that Easter is a legitimate Old English translation of Pasha. Now I know that sounds confusing to many of you right now, but just bear with me. I'm going to do my best to untangle the confusion. Sometimes, I've told a lot of people over the years when I'm explaining a truth to them that is new to their ears, sometimes when we become unconfused, it's confusing because we've thought something for so long and then somebody comes along and says, no, that's not correct. Let me tell you what the proper way is. We're becoming unconfused, but that's confusing in the process. Now, are you confused yet? Follow along carefully. Bear with me. Follow along. I'll put this all on YouTube. You can go back and, and do more research and study in your private study time. Um, in studying this subject, I've ran across an explanation given by most King James-only advocates for the word Easter in Acts 12, verse 4. Now, these people, these particular King James-only people, believe that Easter is an exclusively pagan word that describes an ancient fertility goddess. And they believe that the King James translators used the word Easter in Acts 12 and 4 to refer to a pagan festival as opposed to the biblical festival of Passover and unleavened bread. This is a very common King James only argument. All right? Now, I'm going to let a King James only man explain it to you in this next video on the screen. Showed me what looks like a genuine mistranslation in the King James Bible, and he was showing me Acts chapter 12, I think it's verse 4, where it says the word Easter. Mm -hmm. Well, he said that's Pascha, the Greek word Pascha shows up 29 times in the New Testament, and every time it's translated as Passover, mm -hmm. except for this one time in Acts chapter 12, yeah. it's Easter. 
which looks like a mistranslation. And he said you should have known that. But, I mean, is that true that the word Pascha shows up 29 times in the yeah. New Testament? Yeah, 29 times it appears in the New Testament. And 28 times it's translated Passover. And the one time that it's not is Easter right here in Acts chapter 12. But isn't that a mistranslation then? Or? <laughs> no, actually, it's one of the strongest evidences, Justin, of why you want a King James Bible to nothing else. Yeah, long before it was associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Easter was a pagan holiday. It had a female deity known as the Queen of Heaven. Uh, it was uh, Her name was Astarte or Estar. Uh, it was a celebration of the earth regenerating itself after a tough winter when everything was dead. And because it was a, about regeneration, the symbols were an egg and a rabbit, and it was associated with the vernal equinox as far as a date. So every year the date changed. Uh, it can happen anywhere between March 22nd and April 25th. So it was a pagan holiday long before it was ever associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the information I just gave you comes from a source called Hyssop's Two Babylons, which is a great historic source. And it's all accurate. But there's a problem. And the problem is it's not an inspired book. Now I'm always hammering you guys in class about what our final authority is. What is it? The Bible. The Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. We may go to something like Hyslop's Two Babylons just for some information that the Bible doesn't have, historic information, but it's not inspired. We need to finish this. We need to finish all studies with the authority of Scripture. So we need to see what the Bible has to say about Easter. Actually, we need to see what the Bible says about the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Because Peter was arrested during those Days of Unleavened Bread. And we need to see what that relationship is. And the Bible is the only place we're going to find that. Here, have a seat. Now, the first Passover was found in Exodus chapter 12. And it tells us that it was in the first month, which is, according to Exodus chapter 13, verse 4, the month of Abib. It was on the 14th day of the month the Lord passed over. Now, the Lord only passed over Egypt and killed the firstborn one night, not seven, not eight. Keep that in mind for later. And then the next day, on the 15th to the 21st, are what the Bible calls the Days of Unleavened Bread. I, I kind of get what you're saying. It's just not very clear. Well, that's why we go back to the Bible for our final authority. Look at Leviticus chapter 23. Look at verse 5. In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Look at the next verse. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now, go to Numbers chapter 28. In verse 16, and in the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. Verse 17, and in the 15th day of this month is the feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. By the way, you remember how the, the date for Easter changes? Mm -hmm. The date for the Passover never changes. It does not move from year to year. In Numbers chapter 9, the Bible tells what the children of Israel did. They kept the Passover, the, the next Passover. The first one out of Egypt, one year later after they left, they kept it on Abib 14. And on the 15th to the 21st, they kept the days of unleavened bread. Well, I heard somewhere that all eight days together were considered the Passover, Abib 14 through 21. So Herod, maybe there were some days left over. You know, Herod was waiting for, you know, after the Passover. Waiting the last few days of the Passover waiting to the be passed. Yeah. The people that don't like the King James Bible make it up as they go. There is nothing in Scripture that says that. Now, Justin, if somebody says in Bible times or in the Bible, however they want to say it, if they say all eight days are called the Passover, then there should be a, a verse that they got that from. Where did they get that? Either made it up in their mind or they got it from the Bible. 
you have a right to say, show me that in the Bible. Show me someplace in the Bible where it says all eight days are called the Passover. Fact is, not found anywhere. Hmm. Fact is, just the opposite. Take a look at Numbers chapter 33. Now, this is not the opinion of a man. This is not my opinion, by the way. This is why, this is why I've always told you. The Bible is our final authority, not Sam Gipp, not any, anybody else, no scholar. This is the authority, and look what it says in verse 3. Numbers 33, 3, it says, talking about the children of Israel getting out of Egypt. And they departed from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover. Hmm. There is scriptural authority that the 15th of Abib, the Passover's already passed. It's very similar if they arrested a noted criminal on December 28th, and the news people asked the sheriff, when are you going to arraign him? And he said, after Christmas. But he was arrested after Christmas. But the next coming holiday, they'd say, after New Year's. We arrested him after Christmas. We're waiting till after New Year's. So the King James Bible is the only Bible that correctly translates that 28 times Passover and one time Easter. By the way, in Greece, when Greeks say Easter's coming, Pascha is the word they use. Well, I thought I saw on a Jewish calendar that that whole week, all eight days, is called the, the Pascal week. Or... Yeah, I've seen that too. But remember, that's not the inspired Bible. That's what the Jews say. And these are the guys that didn't recognize their Messiah when he was standing right in front of them. I don't think I'm going to worry about what they thought of the, of, of the Passover. You believe that Jesus Christ was God? Yeah. All right. Was he ever wrong? No. Okay, do you think he was ever just maybe mistaken? Never. Never. The night he was arrested, he sent two of his disciples, and he said, go tell that man, I want that upper room to keep the Passover with my disciples. Then he was arrested that night, and he was dead the next day. So if the Passover in the Bible was eight days, he never did what he said he was going to do. He never kept the Passover. But if the Passover is one day, he did it, and then it was taken care of. So, Justin, the Passover is Abel 14. 15 through 21 are the days of unleavened bread. Peter was arrested right in there somewhere. So the Passover was already passed. Herod couldn't be waiting for something to pass that was already passed. He was waiting for the future Easter to pass. And our King James Bible has it right. Well, that settles that. No, that doesn't settle that. Um, there's a lot of... Obviously, when he's reading the scriptures, it's truth, right? So there's just so many mixed truths and half-truths in that video. It's a very well-done video. Uh, just for one example, he said that in Greece, when they say that Easter's coming, they use the word Pasha. And that is correct, but to a person that is a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, when they use the word Pasha, they're not talking about a pagan feast. So more on that here in just a little bit. In a nutshell, the contention is that since Peter in Acts 12 was placed in prison during the days of unleavened bread, the Passover had already happened because Passover takes place before the days of unleavened bread. So... They say it had to be the pagan festival of Easter that came after the Jewish feast that Herod was waiting to pass in Acts 12, verse 4. Now, it's a great, very well done video. I give him an A-plus for effort on trying to figure out how to justify the King James Bible, but he is incorrect, and the explanation that he gives is easily refuted. Uh, number one, this point by itself disproves what 
Mr. Sam Gipp, who was the older gentleman that spoke there. This point by itself proves that what he said is incorrect. The Greek word used in Acts 12 and 4 is the word pasha. It's a transliteration of the Aramaic form of Pesach. It means what we call Passover. It has nothing to do with a pagan goddess. It has nothing to do with a pagan feast. Now, when you're as hardcore of a King James-only man as Sam Gipp is, he's a very interesting character. Look up a lot of videos on YouTube. He's quite an interesting fella. Um, but when you're that hardcore and you, you corner a King James-only Bible believer, this fellow will take the English over the Greek. He'll actually say that if it's in the English Bible, it doesn't really matter what the Greek text says. When we wouldn't even have a King James New Testament if it wasn't for the Greek New Testament because the Greek New Testament came first, the English came much later. So that point by itself disproves the entire video. The Greek word that is used means the Passover or the Pesach. Uh, number two, the days of unleavened bread are mentioned right there in the context. And number three, which did not get mentioned, very easy to prove, there are times in Scripture where the term Passover, Pasha, Pesach, whatever language you speak, is used as a shorthand for the entirety of the feast. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you see the word Passover in the Bible that it's talking about the whole feast. Sometimes it's just talking about the killing of the lamb. Sometimes it's talking about the meal that's eaten that night after the killing of the lamb. But sometimes in the Bible, when you see the word Passover, it is in reference as shorthand for the entire feast from the 14th all the way to the end of the 21st. Here are two verses that show this. One is in Ezekiel 45, 21, King James Version. It says, In the first month, in the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And then in Luke 22, verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, or the Pasha. Now take note that the author that wrote Luke 22, verse 1, as we call it, was Dr. Luke. Luke is the same author that wrote the book of Acts. And he's using Pasha, as Luke wrote, probably wrote in Greek, he's using Pasha in both text, Luke 22, 1 and Acts 12 and 4, as shorthand for the entirety of the feast in the spring on Yahweh's calendar. So I do not believe that the King James translators were writing in the name of a pagan goddess in Acts 12, verse 4. Remember, they were not dumb men. They translated Pasha as Passover 28 out of the 29 times in the King James Bible. In the front of the 1611 King James Bible, which I meant to bring the reprint that I have. I own a reprint of the 1611 in my library. I meant to bring that. forgot about it. But in the front, there's a chart titled, To Find Easter Forever. And it is a help to find where Easter falls on the church calendar each year. I'm talking about their church, the Church of England. Now, there's a lot to the history of the calculation of Easter. That will come in a later sermon. But I want to briefly mention at this point that Easter is calculated by finding the first spring full moon, the first vernal full moon, and then by taking the Sunday that follows after that full moon. This makes Easter, Easter Sunday, fall on a different date on our calendar each year. 
And that's because Easter is partially determined by the solar lunar calendar. It's very similar. It's not exactly, but it's very similar to how our Sabbaths, they don't change by the heavenly calendar. But how many people have had somebody ask you, why does your Sabbath change every month? You ever, ever had anybody ask you that? Well, I had people ask me that for the last, you know, 15 years. And I have to explain to them, it changes because whenever you mix two calendars, they're not going to overlap perfectly. So our Sabbaths are on the same date and day each moon, but it's a different date and day on the Gregorian calendar. It's the same thing with Easter. And that's because Easter is partially determined by the solar lunar calendar. So you see, like, in 2018... It's always on a Sunday because they set it up like that way back when. I'll talk about that later. But it's on April 1st this year, April 21st next year, April 12th in 2020, March 31st in 2013, March 27th in 2016, so forth and so on. Now, when the King James translators included a chart in their Bible translation on how to find Easter at the beginning of the 1611 KJV, were they trying to find the pagan festival of Ishtar. No, they weren't. They were charting out when to keep the festival of their church that celebrated the death and resurrection of Christ. That proves that when they wrote Easter in Acts 12 verse 4, they were not writing in a pagan feast. They were writing in something else. Now, there are also other charts at the front of the 1611 King James Bible showing that the translators did not believe the word Easter referred to a pagan holiday. They mentioned certain psalms to be sung on Easter or lessons to be read on Easter, and those charts further disproved the claims in the last video. The King James Bible translators, when they put in Easter, they were not saying, this is the pagan festival of Ishtar that comes after the Days of Unleavened Bread. No, they weren't doing that. They knew that the Greek word Pasha meant the Pesach. They knew that. It is so common among Torah-keeping believers to believe that the word Easter itself is originally and exclusively a pagan word. You will hear people say that Easter is Ishtar or Astarte or even Asherah in Old Testament Scripture. I've said the same thing many times before. I'm not knocking everybody else, putting myself in the same boat. I've said the same thing. The problem is, is that when we who are not educated on ancient languages or the proper etymology of words, when we hear Easter and Ishtar, we automatically think, boom, that proves it. Let's go shove this in a Christian's face. We think that just because something sounds similar in wording that it must be the same thing. It's not the case. Couple that ignorance with the fact that most in the Torah-keeping movement are quick to accept something as pagan simply because somebody says it is and because it sounds good. I've seen entire videos, hour-long videos, that talk about paganism. And some of the, what they say will be accurate and it can be proven, but a lot of what they say, they just say it and nobody ever expects them to give any proof. You should always prove everything that you're studying. Anything somebody tells you, don't accept until it's proved. And don't think that you can just study something for one evening or two evenings or a week and then you have it all down. I call it meme theology or Facebook theology. People's minds are so... They're so geared to wanting to figure out something quick. 
that we have forgotten that good theology takes time. It takes research. I would say that if somebody brings you something that's very important doctrinally, spend a good two years studying, talking to them, asking questions, looking up different things about it, meditating, do more studying, praying about it. Spend a good two years on it. Most people won't do that because we want something real fast. And we see a good meme that comes across social media and we think, oh, this proves our point, so let's share that meme. And we've disproven everybody else. That's not proper. That's not really honoring the Yahweh. So, what did Easter originally mean? I want to present to you that the word Easter has German roots, Germanic roots, and is basically a word that means East or Eastern. And it refers to the springtime due east sunrise at the time of the spring equinox. Here is the explanation of the prefix east from Oxford's online etymological dictionary. I'm going to try to read this for sake of the recording. Old English east, eastern, adjective adverb. East, easterly, eastward, east, noun. From Proto-Germanic ost, east, literally toward the sunrise. Source also of Old Frisian, ast, east, aster, eastward, Dutch, oost, Old Saxon, ost, Old High German, Austin, German, ost, Old Norse, ost, from the east, from pi, root, os, one to shine, especially of the dawn. The east is the direction in which dawn breaks, for theory of shift in the geographical sense in Latin, see, austral. That's a lot. Words. You could see in the etymology that the direction of the rising of the sun is what we're dealing with here. It's not much of a leap in English to go from saying Easter to Eastern. And the reality is they mean the same thing. It's from an old German word that refers to the position where the sun rises. Now, when you look up the actual etymology of the word Easter in this same dictionary, from Oxford, you find this definition. Follow along carefully and then I'll comment. Old English, Easter Dag, from Eastre, Northumbrian, Eostre, from Proto-Germanic, Ostron, Dawn. Also the name of a goddess of fertility and spring, perhaps originally of sunrise, whose feast was celebrated at the spring equinox. From Ost, East, toward the sunrise, compare East from Pyru, Os, to Shine, especially of the dawn. Now, I am absolutely 100% positive for certain that my Hebrew roots friends that hear this will point out to me the connection here with the goddess of fertility. <laughs> and it is possible. It's debated. I think it's probably the case. It is debated. There's only one historical source that says that the Germans worshipped a goddess named Eostre. I think it's probable instead of possible. But... There was later, hundreds of years after the first century, a goddess named Eostre worshipped by the Germanic and Anglo-Saxon peoples in the springtime. And I do believe that there is legitimate etymological connection between Eostre and Easter. But that is because they both come from the same root of Ost or East. But I'd like us to think a little bit deeper here. It makes sense for the Germanic word east or ost that has to do with dawn or sunrise 
to be a word that German or Anglo-Saxon peoples used to name this goddess they worshipped in the springtime. In other words, the word itself is not a pagan word. They used that word to describe or name a goddess who was celebrated during a spring pagan feast. That does not mean that the word Easter means that pagan goddess. What it does mean is that the word was applied to that pagan goddess. And yes, bunnies and eggs and fertility rites have nothing to do with Yeshua or his resurrection. So if you thought that I was going to say, well, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt (laughs) or have the Easter bunny come and visit us, that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. All of that was later additions to Easter Sunday. Even the early Christians that kept Passover, Pasha, on Sunday didn't do any of that. That's, that's That's for another time. But all of that is extra biblical and was connected with the worship of Yastre in the spring by, by Germanic people. So I'm not suggesting that anyone start associating these practices with the resurrection of Yeshua. You'll look in vain in the Bible to find any of that. But what all of that does not prove is that the word Easter itself is a heathen word. It's not. Easter is a Germanic word that originally had to do with the location of the rising of the sun, specifically in the spring season at the time of the equinox. When we say the sun rises in the east, we could just as easily say the sun rises in the eastern direction. It's the same thing. What some early Christians did, and possibly what all of them did, some more so than others, was they took the rising of the sun in the east as a picture of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And they called it dawn or sunrise in a spiritual terminology, which in German would be Easter or Ulster. So what happened was this. Let me put it in a nutshell for you, and we'll go into more detail in a later lesson. In the 2nd century A.D., about 100 years, 100 plus years after the time of the Messiah, there was a split in the early church over when to celebrate Pasha as a memorial of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Some chose to celebrate Pasha on the 14th day of Abib. That would have been me. I would have been back there in that group, and I'd have been saying, why don't we celebrate Pasha on the day that Yahweh says, celebrate Pasha. Makes sense to me, how all the prophets and apostles did it. But there was another group that chose to celebrate Pasha on the Sunday that came after the 14th of Abib. Because at that time, they believed that was the first day of the week. But both groups called it Pasha. The ones that celebrated on the 14th, they called it Pasha, Passover, what we call Passover, we say it. Passover wasn't even used back then, that word. But the group that celebrated on the, on the Sunday, what they believed to be the first day of the week, they called that day Pasha as well. They said, we celebrate Pasha on the Sunday after the 14th day of Abib. The group that celebrated on Sunday focused on the resurrection, but they called Resurrection Day Pasha. Why? Well, because the resurrection of Christ is very intimately associated with the death of Christ. The word Pasha focuses more on the death of Christ as the Pascal or the Pasha Lamb. And the word Easter focuses on the resurrection of Christ, dawn, sunrise, east. 
Later on, around the 8th century A.D., the German word Ost or East, meaning sunrise or dawn, came to be a secondary name for Pasha. While Pasha is a word that is more focused on the death of Christ, as I just said, Easter is more focused on the resurrection of Christ. So Easter, like Pasha, came to be a way to refer to both the Passover on the 14th day of Abib and also the new resurrection memorial of many in the Christian church. And the word Easter was used as an equivalent of Pasha long before the word Passover was ever coined as an English translation of Pesach. I think I mentioned last week that no one called the feast Passover, the compound word, until William Tyndale, when he translated the New Testament from the Greek into English, and he come across the word Pasha, he came up with the compound word Passover to describe that feast. And it stuck, and I think it's a great word, I think it describes the Hebrew word Pesach, But nobody used that term, Passover, prior to William Tyndale coining that term in his English translation. What Christians for hundreds of years called the Passover in Exodus 12, one of the names they called it was Easter. That's what they called it. And they were referring, by that word, they were referring to the old ancient Israelite Passover. It was a secondary name for the Passover, for the Pesach. Now let me get your mind stirring for next week. You said, Brother Matthew, my mind's already stirring. (laughs) You said, I caught about 37% of everything you said, Brother Matthew. Don't worry. You'd be more than, I'm more than glad to take any questions when we're finished and and, uh, do my best to, to help you to understand and me to understand more as well. Mind stirring for next week. Preview. The King James translator's use of Easter in Acts 12 verse 4 was actually a carryover from an established practice of old English speaking peoples that used the word Easter to describe the Hebrew Pesach. Next week we're going to look at Bible translations from the 1500s and we'll look at what I've recently found, something called the West Saxon Gospels which are written in very old, old English. If you read it, if you looked at it, you, you couldn't read it. But they date from about the 10th century A.D., so the 900s. And every time, like in the New Testament, where you read, like in John 11, now the Jews' Passover was at hand, in the West Saxon Gospels, it says Easter. But it's referring to the ancient feast that was kept. One quick example, William Tyndale. Very intelligent man, spoke eight languages fluently. They said that no matter which language that William Tyndale spoke, you would think it was his native tongue because he spoke it so well. I watched a film about him last night. Uh, It's called God's Outlaw. Highly recommend that film, by the way. It shows how Mr. Tyndale was burned to death because he wanted to translate the Bible into English, Old English or Middle English, so that the common folk, the people that gardened and the people that didn't know Latin, which was the official language of the Roman Catholic Church, he wanted everybody to be able to understand in the language that they knew. Now, he wasn't the first guy to translate the Bible into into English. There was another guy by the name of um, John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. Not from the Greek, but he did it from the Latin Vulgate. So he kind of paved the way and then Tyndale... uh, 
kind of picked up that mantle and then, of course, Yahweh opened the, the King of England's eyes in the 1600s and everybody got the Bible in their native tongue, um, even the plowman, the, the commoner. Um, so William Tyndale was a very fine Christian man. But in his 1526 New Testament, he writes 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. This is what he says, For Christ our Esther Lamb is offered up for us. Now, he's talking about the Pesach Lamb. William Tyndale's not talking about Easter Sunday. William Tyndale's not talking about bunnies, rabbits, Ishtar. He's not talking about any of that. When he says Esther Lamb, he's talking about the spring lamb. The spring lamb, that is Yeshua. Let me also speak, or excuse me, let me also pique your curiosity a bit more for the next lesson. Many Messianic Torah-keeping believers think that any time that they hear the word sun, sunrise, or east associated with the Messiah, it's got to be pagan. But is that the case? What does the Bible really say? So come back next week to we'll, we'll talk about that. So let's stand and have a word of prayer, and we'll we'll uh, close out that way. And feel free to come and talk with me if you'd like. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time of Bible study. I pray that you would continue to enlighten our minds with your truth. I pray that we would honor you by seeking truth and only truth. Father, that we would reject error and we would study to show ourselves approved. Help us, Father, where we are wrong. Help us to see the errors of our ways. And we'll give you praise and glory for it, Father, for we seek truth. Yahweh, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you so much for a desire to study the Bible. I love you. I love your people. For it's through your Son we pray.